In Joe Rogan style, three, two, one. And we are live. All right. <laughs> okay, this is a long time coming, Rob. You know, we did our first one. What yes. has it been two or three weeks ago now? A couple of weeks now. Yeah. And, you know, we've had snow and everything else come in the middle of this. Um, so hopefully the world is prepared. Yeah. For this true inaugural edition of our Speakeasy podcast. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to the topic that you want to talk about tonight. So, so you guys know, and I'm going to look at the camera here in case we do the video here. Um, Rob and I have been talking about this. We gave you a little overview the last time we talked of all the things we want to talk about this morning. I was thinking about it, like, you know, how's this going to come together? And I just felt like the Lord was showing me like, remember Rob, when we were growing up, you'd go to the grocery store and as kids, you wanted that variety pack of the cereals. Yes. The little boxes of cereal. Yeah. And it had, and you, you, you know, you would say it wanted, you wanted to make sure it had the fruit loops in it. Right. Uh, the lucky charm, frosted flakes, but nobody really wanted the Wheaties. No, or no the, one wanted the Wheaties or the Post Toasties. Yeah, or the uh, Kellogg's Corn Flakes. Yeah, the more adult, <laughs> the more adult cereals. Yeah, but but I think too sometimes, and we've grown to learn. Sometimes you got to eat the Corn Flakes. Yeah, you know? sometimes you have to eat your Wheaties. Yeah, and, and you got to have those. So some of the topics that we talk about are going to be those. They're going to be those kind of subjects. They're not yeah. going to be as fun and flavorable as the Fruit Loops, uh, but we probably need the Wheaties and there's probably more of what we really need in the Wheaties. The older <laughs> I get, the more bran I need. <laughs> and this might be the theological equivalent of bran here. Uh, might not be as palatable, yep. as easy to go down, but we need it for good spiritual digestion. Uh, yeah, I agree. Totally. So if we get off track, guys, that's sometimes maybe God's just getting us to eat some of our Wheaties and maybe some of the Fruit Loops back and forth. So if we get off track, we'll come back. So Rob, tell us about one of the things you wanted to talk about. Well, as I was anticipating uh, this podcast and thinking about possible subjects, uh, I think a subject that would be very appropriate for a podcast entitled Spiritual Speakeasy. Uh, a, a podcast which kind of specializes in things that perhaps Christians do not discuss in polite conversation, uh, certainly not uh, often enough in Sunday schools or uh, Bible study classes. Uh, and that is the struggles that people have with their faith, yeah. uh, particularly when they come to realize that the faith that was bequeathed to them as children through vacation Bible school or Sunday school, sort of the traditional discipleship models that both you and I as former Southern Baptists mm -hmm. experienced growing up. What happens when that rather elementary faith fails us in the face of life's less pleasant circumstances, yeah. uh, in the face of uh, questions that really, uh, deserve more than a simple Sunday school answer. <clears throat> and really my, my thinking along these lines was prompted over the last few days as I stumbled across uh, what's now a rather dated Christianity Today article uh, back from May of last year, <clears throat> where one of the members of the Christian rap group DC Talk, Kevin Max, 
sort of came out as exvangelical,、mm. and he's not the first to do this. But considering the fact that he is trained at Liberty University,、uh, yeah. grew up in a very <clears throat> sort of Southern Baptist context, where of all people he should have been predisposed and conditioned not to walk away from his faith.、Um, yeah, it, you would think he would. He would be strong in his faith. Yes, you know he's got. He's already been through these answers. He would be the kind of person that somebody would go up to to get those answers that maybe they're struggling with. A- absolutely, he、yeah. was trained in theology and apologetics, and、mm-hmm. and all of the the disciplines of Christian scholarship that are in theory designed to prevent you from doing exactly what he's done. Walk away from.、Mm-hmm. The faith tradition that he, in which he was sort of incubated、right. as a child and a young adult, and so I want us to think about in this podcast, and maybe this becomes a two-parter. This may be too、mm-hmm. long for us to deal with in simply one podcast. I want us to think about what I consider to be the rather、uh, remarkable but entirely predictable、uh, rise of the exvangelicals, and exvangelical is. Sort of a, a hot button hashtag term to describe ex evangelicals. It may be helpful for us to begin by thinking about evangelicalism as a movement,、mm. because it's a fairly young movement.、Um, the the term evangelical really leapt into、uh, popular parlance, popular use at, during the campaign, the presidential campaign of Jimmy Carter.、Uh, he was the first sort of high profile person. To classify himself as an evangelical, so this would tie into the moral majority time frame,、so、right? About the, the early to mid seventies,、uh, although Jerry Falwell and Jimmy Carter would have been in decidedly different political camps, right? Prior to the that time, prior to the seventies, you would have identified yourself as a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Pentecostal or a Roman Catholic. Evangelical became sort of、um, an umbrella term,、okay. <clears throat> designed to unite people who may have disagreed on a host of secondary、uh, theological ideas. They could unite together on what would, they would consider to be the basics or the fundamentals of the Christian faith,、uh, because they were concerned about drift within the culture,、uh, drift within politics.、Uh, so the evangelical movement was designed to sort of corral people who had common cultural or political concerns.、Um, so, so a evangelical could be a. Charismatic Pentecostal、uh, Christian at the same time,、uh, a Southern Baptist or a Methodist or a Lutheran, more conservative type, still would be evangelicals. That, a- absolutely. Okay.、Uh, and there were a whole host of schools and missionary agencies that lined up under <clears throat> under this、um, uh, badge of evangelicalism. Gotcha.、Um, okay. And. Evangelicals tended to be politically Republican, uh, uh, pro-life, pro-traditional、uh, marriage, pro-family values. I'm certainly not.、Okay. I'm not criticizing that or,、right. or, or critiquing that, but that tended to be the things that united them.、Uh, and there wasn't a lot of concern for、uh, more sophisticated 
theological ideas. Uh, they tended to put most of their focus on uh, these so-called fundamental Christian concerns, especially as they related to the broader political and cultural climate. <clears throat> and most of these ex-evangelicals came out of that kind of movement uh, where their, their faith was sort of characterized by uh, these cultural or political concerns primarily. Um, so so when, I'm, when I think of the term evangelicals, Rob, immediately in my mind, it sort of conjures up a political angle. Yes. That I already, because I expect that on the news, if I'm going to listen to CNN or even Fox, when I hear evangelicals, I always think, okay, now we're going to go to a political yes. thing. So do you think that's part of these guys that are leaving? Is it, do you think part of the root of their is I, I, I think I think that's part of it. Uh, I'd like to draw our attention in, in this podcast and maybe the one to come uh, to three uh, primary influences that I think are uh, uh, motivating this migration away from uh, traditional evangelicalism. Uh, and in some cases, these individuals are not renouncing their Christian faith. Uh, they're simply no longer identifying as evangelical Christians. Now, in, in the more extreme cases, you have people coming out as agnostic or atheistic. And I think that's more of a of a reaction than a, a well thought out sort of yeah. sophisticated move on on their part. Um, yeah, and a matter of fact, Rob, because uh, I did a little research since oh, I sort of knew what you're talking. Yeah, a little show prep, and and then I found out Lecrae seems mm. to be in this. And then I, what I found was a lot of articles in Lecrae being a Christian rap artist who's been uh, really established in both worlds. He's been able to sort of be in the pop culture world right. and also in the Christian world. And there were some articles out that he renounced his faith. Mm. When I really got to read some of the background on it, I found out he was really renouncing some of the institutionalized Christian organizations okay. of what doing and not necessarily, and to clarify, I'm not turning my faith or turning my back on Jesus. Hmm. It's all the stuff we've attached maybe in our evangelical world that he's having a problem. With. Okay. Probably, especially in the music industry. Hmm. Well, I, I want us to, to think about, again, what I think are the three uh, principal, although not, uh, uh, th this wouldn't entirely explain the migration out of evangelicalism. I think yeah. these uh, three concerns uh, sort of encapsulate a lot of what's motivating these individuals here. The first would be cultural. The second would be political, and mm -hmm. the third, and the one that I hope we put the most emphasis on, is ex exegetical. Uh, the actual close study of Scripture itself. Um, All right, ex explain that a little bit, Rob. So, I'm the non-seminary guy, so uh, it, it break down that word for us. If well, uh, exeg exegetical refers to exegesis, which is the uh, the process that pastors and Bible students engage in uh, as we take a passage of Scripture, a verse of Scripture apart, okay. and attempt to interpret it correctly in its immediate and broader context. Um, 
All right. So we're gonna we're gonna really break down the context of what's going on, the timing, who's speaking, everything. So to really set the whole stage before we really dig in to see what the text is actually telling us. All of that would be a part of the exegetical process, which should lead you to better interpretation. Okay. And if we don't do that, I'm assuming there's an opposite term. Well, eisegesis would be the opposite term, where you are reading things into the text. I'm coming to the text with presupposition, with with preconceived notions. I've already decided what the text says, perhaps even before I've read it. Okay. And then you're going to just grab some verses to sort of support your point. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Um, So... In every generation, you have had individuals who have walked away from the faith of their childhood. Uh, Martin Luther in the Protestant Reformation did that. Uh, And in different generations, um, that that generation is motivated by the unique set of of, of circumstances um, that make up that context, that historical context. Um, where Where do liberals come from? Uh, and I'm using liberal in a value-neutral sort of way. Yeah. Uh, most liberals were initially conservative, and they moved away from their conservatism for whatever reason. Mm. Uh, in in our study in this podcast, in our discussion, I want us to think about these cultural and political and uh, in, interpretive influences that perhaps made these individuals uncomfortable with their um, alignment with the evangelical movement. Uh, and, and when I think about cultural, for most churches, men take almost the, the sole lead right. in matters of spiritual and pastoral leadership. In the broader world, however, the world that most of these ex-evangelicals move in six days during the week, Hmm. you have women in positions of influence and leadership that is encouraged. Uh, It's seen as a good thing, uh, whether you're at work or at school. uh, The leadership of women is not considered to be a dysfunctional thing or uh, a, a negative thing whatsoever. No negative connotation associated with that. Right. But then on Sunday morning. Yeah, unfortunately. In Sunday school or from behind the pulpit, the voice they hear is a primarily male one. Uh, and they've come to question mm-hmm. the correctness of that. Uh, have men been using the Bible to illegitimately assert their gender's dominance over the other 50% yeah. of the body of Christ. Boy, that's a complete podcast in itself. Yes. Because uh, I think that's actually, you know, I, I, I consider now we're sort of in the next reformation that's going on. And that's one of the key things <clears throat> I think the church needs to deal with is this fact that we have half our team on the bench mm. because we've relegated women to you can do children's nursery you can do the women's nursery but leave the big stuff to us kind of thing yes and 
I just don't see a scriptural basis for that. I mm. just, you know, there's neither Jew, nor Greek, male nor female, and we have to wrestle with those verses. Uh, so I feel like we've left half our team on the uh, bench on that. But let, we'll go back to your point. Well, no, and, and yeah. I, I agree. I, I think your your observations are well made. Uh, and, and while within broader evangelicalism, you do have those who are more sympathetic to uh, women as missionaries, women even as pastors, women mm. in the pulpit. By and large, the evangelical movement has been male-dominated uh, and has used texts like 1 Timothy chapter 3 uh, to, or, or uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, where uh, Paul, for whatever reason, seems to assert that women should be silent within the churches. If they have any questions, let them wait and ask their husbands uh, when they're out of the worship service right. or back home. They've used those texts to, again, sideline, as, as you put mm -hmm. it, to, uh, to put half the team on the bench. Uh, so these ex-evangelicals, and they tend to be uh, from the generation that's coming up behind us. Mm -hmm. They tend to be yeah. younger than us, although there are a considerable number of professing Christians within our generation uh, that would be a part of this movement as well. It's primarily younger people who simply aren't satisfied with those arguments yeah. anymore. Um, and as they have interacted with those who are more supportive of the LGBT movement. Mm -hmm. Younger people tend to feel a sense of advocacy and support for that movement uh, than Christians of, of our generation and maybe a generation older than us. Yeah. And they do not feel like the church has been as kind yeah. to those who are wrestling with issues of sexual orientation. Well, you are being kind by using the term kind, right. I think. And, you know, uh, that's, <clears throat> and we've talked about that before, but what the church has really, we let's put it this way, we've given that community a reason to hate us mm. uh, and not trust us right. because of the way we've treated it. And, uh, we have so, not imaged Christ very well. No, we have not been loving. I would say that the majority of the time, anybody from that uh, community has any reaction or interaction they've had with Christians, they have not felt loved mm. through that conversation. And that's something we all need to change. And, and and I think you're right. Young people who feel that obligation and have a lot of friends that have come out as gay and they love them. They're loving people. They see this. And then all of a sudden they feel like they can't invite them to church because of how they might be treated. Right. And right. so they got this conflict. Yes. Okay. Now that's a great point. And, and, and let me um, let me clarify my position here. I don't want to be misunderstood as arguing that the culture should dictate terms right. to the church. I'm not arguing that. I'm I simply making the observation that um, the the impact of culture uh, has certainly had an influence mm -hmm. on these that are walking away from uh, sort of the traditional evangelical version of Christianity right. uh, that tends to be, again, because of its political and cultural concerns, uh, seems out of step in their eyes with with what they're interacting with, their friends, their co-workers, mm -hmm. uh, 
the people they see around them on a daily basis, uh, who do not have horns growing out of their heads, who aren't carrying (laughs) pitchforks, who seem like nice, reasonable people, Mm -hmm. but disagree rather strongly with them on some of these cultural concerns related to gender or sexual orientation. Yeah. And you think, Rob, it seems to me too, just in the way the culture is so divisive right now, Mm. we don't know how to communicate when we're on opposite sides. It's like you have to be on this side or this side and there's no communication. There's no time. You know, you and I don't agree on everything, Mm. but yet we we've worked out where we can have a conversation, love each other, still interact with each other. And that seems to be a lost skill, particularly here in America. Now we can't have a conversation and, and disagree with each other without all of a sudden it's like almost fisticuffs kind of situation. Right. And, and the church has followed suit on that so that, um, there has been a tendency within the church and, and within this broader evangelical movement from which many are exiting now, uh, that if I disagree with someone politically or culturally, um, it's not enough to simply recognize them as someone with whom I disagree intellectually. I have to vilify them. I have to attack their character. And I think a lot of these younger people are reacting strongly against that impulse to destroy your theological opponent or yeah. destroy your political opponent uh, rather than engage them in, in open and honest dialogue and maybe learn something yeah. from that interaction. We've been very short on listening uh, and very long on uh demonizing and engaging in, you know, uh, rather harsh propaganda yeah. against those with whom we disagree. And I got to admit, I've been guilty of that mm. uh, Me too. in the past. And it's something I've tried to change. And I've tried to take a turn of asking more questions rather than just telling people you're wrong. Right. You know, this is why and, and that. And uh, when I ask more questions, it's interesting Sometimes I get close to changing my view when I understand why they believe right. what they believe. Right. You know, sometimes there's a root cause of what happened mm-hmm. or why they believe that. And you can see it from a different perspective. Yes. So, okay. All right. I can see that. So a lot of our young folks are in that. And I think you mentioned the political aspect and that sort of mm. came along and I guess just amplified it. Yeah. And here I may go from preaching to meddling. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because... <laughs> While, I, while I'm, I haven't been touched as strongly by the cultural things that we've been describing, um, I have been disturbed by the, the political, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? The way in which evangelicals have lined up politically in lockstep behind certain elements of the Republican Party. particularly those that rose to prominence during uh, Trump's initial campaign for presidency Mm -hmm. uh, and and during his administration. Uh, And let me tell you why I was concerned about that. Um, The very same forces that lined up against Bill Clinton, uh, not just toward the tail end of his presidency with the uh, the Monica Lewinsky scandal, but 
from the very outset of his campaign against George W. Bush uh, back in 92, declaring that he was, by virtue of his character, unfit for that high office. Right. Uh, and then as various scandals broke out, uh, the uh, Whitewater scandal, and then the, the, the Capstone scandal being the Monica Lewinsky affair, um, you had everyone from Jerry Falwell to other prominent leaders, Southern Baptist leaders within the evangelical movement, denouncing Bill Clinton. He's unfit to be president. He's unfit to hold office because our president must be someone of sterling character. And I endorse the idea mm -hmm. that the person we elect for that high office should have a character befitting that. Right. Which made it all the more ironic <laughs> when these same folks <clears throat> were lining up behind a serial adulterer mm -hmm. in Donald Trump uh, and someone who had engaged throughout his uh, professional life in questionable business practices. The fact that all of that was conveniently overlooked uh, because he was seen as someone who could win for our side. Yeah. Uh, and you had Trump appearing uh, at convocation at uh, Liberty University uh, and Jerry Falwell Jr. Uh, mm -hmm. comparing him favorably first to his father and then to the Apostle Paul and finally to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Yeah. Uh, at which yeah. my, my gag reflex <laughs> was, was fully engaged well, at that point. And even on the other side, Rob, we had we had prominent people within the charismatic world and Pentecostal world aligning him and saying he's the Cyrus. Mm. Uh, so they were ab adding scriptural context of saying, look, we think this is God has called him to be the Cyrus and fight for the kingdom and do this and applying it to him. So I, I won't say. I am not giving Trump a pass, right. but we had these evangelical leaders behind Trump pushing him and, and telling him, this is who you are. Right. Uh, and so you're our leader and you, you're going to get this done and God's behind you. And, and that just added to it. Mm. Uh, so I can see uh, going back to the young people, there's, they're watching this go on. And when this is the guy that I listened to this tape and what he said. Yes. And and we're all supporting. And I will say it created a conflict for me. I've I and I'll admit to the audience here, I voted for Trump twice, but I held my nose mm. uh, as I pulled that lever for him. But because I didn't have an alternative mm. that, that 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 I felt would the things that were important to me. The other side just didn't give me any alternative uh, and to to do that. So right. I sort of voted for him by default <laughs> kind of thing. So, okay. Yeah, and, I, and I'm entirely sympathetic to people who felt like voting for Trump was a lesser of two evils move. Yeah. Uh, that they, they're politically responsible. They're, they're not going to sit out an election of such gravity. Right. But that was not the argument that these evangelical leaders were making. They, they weren't making, uh, well, you know, we as Christians have to be politically engaged. And yes, our choices aren't ideal. And gosh, you know, I, I wish, you know, uh, Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio, uh, yeah. someone who had a more established track record as a professing Christian. I mean, Ted Cruz was ideally suited yeah. 
in both his personal uh, resume uh, and and his track record as a churchman uh, to being the evangelical choice for president. Uh, and I was astounded at how the evangelical movement lined up against Cruz and for Trump. Yeah. And it made absolutely no sense. And so these young people that are that constitute the majority within this evangelical movement they saw their parents and their grandparents who had been so hard on Bill Clinton yeah. and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama yeah because of their liberalism yeah uh, and and their character defects uh completely ignore those previous arguments Mm -hmm. and support with enthusiasm as God's man, uh, Donald J. Trump for president. Uh, and because all of the institutions of evangelicalism seem to be unified in their support, these young people are looking for somewhere else to go. And then you get to the point they've been told Trump is going to run and he's going to be elected twice. Mm. And they're being told this by the evangelical community, right. and yet he loses. Mm. And now the disillusionment that they have is even amplified in this. Then we have a group that says the election's stolen. Right. And it just, oh, it just sort of steamrolls from yes. there. Yeah. So the political side of this is just a mess. Right. Uh, and I, I, I can see their point on that. And then, Rob, when I was reading through some of the stuff that you provided and, and through this, it seems like a lot of these folks are dealing with big questions mm. uh, that we've all dealt with that they weren't getting any answers on, or right. they were getting some kind of platitude type, you know, gloss over kind of answer for big questions. Right. Uh, big yeah. theological and to use that $9. Okay, sorry for that abrupt ending there. We just learned that our podcast platform limits us to 30 minutes per podcast. So uh, that was the rude cutoff there. So we will make this part one. We are recording part two that we'll post shortly. In the meantime, just in case you just get to hear this first part, we are not going to leave you by, by just pointing out all these issues that thing that these ex-evangelicals have been dealing with and some of the questions that they've struggled with, but we're going to attempt to give you some potential answers for a lot of those questions and the situations, and also talk about how we as the church should be treating these folks. You know, a lot of times we have a tendency to kick people to the curb or put the scarlet H of heretic on their chest when we shouldn't, when maybe it's a time, the time now is to be listening to them and not try to actually feed them the right answers all the time unless they're asked, but let's give them some room. Let's give them some room to struggle through this and make sure if we do have a chance to talk with any of these folks or friends of ours that are dealing with this kind of thing, that in every conversation we had with them, they leave feeling loved because that's what Jesus would want us to do. All right. Thank you.